What's happening, everyone? And welcome back to another episode of The Beautiful Hustle. I am here with my gorgeous friend, Jessica Saunders. Well, hello, Mr. Philip Procopio. Hello. Uh, I'm really excited for today's conversation. Same. This gentleman that we are interviewing today is the first person who took a chance on me and gave me the opportunity for the career I have today. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, his name is Matt Humphrey. He was the director who recruited me from behind the chair and hired me into the salon development partner wow. 12 years ago. Can you believe? Uh, he took a chance on a hot mess hairdresser <laughs> and uh, lucky for him, this one happened to work out. Well, and our listeners will know because we've talked extensively about the beginnings of our careers yes. and how much of a hot mess we both were. Like, I'm not poking fun at myself. I'm telling you a true story. Uh, I, we sat down at this restaurant in Great Falls, Montana for my interview with him. And I remember him asking me about my benchmarks. I'm like, coming to what? <laughs> I make money all day and I spend it all night. Like I, <laughs> that was truly my lifestyle. And, uh, you know, he's one of those people that just saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. Mm. Um, and he didn't only see it and then put me into the platform. He also nurtured me through it. Um, and also called me on the moments that was like, Hey, that behavior in you doesn't serve you anymore. If you want to elevate to this type of professional, yeah. this is what that looks like. And he modeled that and set me up with some great mentors. And so I just couldn't be more grateful for him. And I'm excited to have him today. It's a really great episode. I think there's going to be a lot of little nuggets, a lot of our owners and managers, especially, but even hairstylists that are listening will take away from this. He is, he really is an, uh, very just smart about it, yep. about this business, especially for someone. Well, and you'll find out who did not start off in the beauty industry. Yeah. So. I love it. Well, let's just jump right in. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We are very excited to have you on today. Jessica is a massive fan of you. And when we were going through kind of the list of people we wanted to have on this season, you were right at the top of that list. So I'm excited to get to know you more. Yeah, absolutely. Matt has um, been a really big pillar in my career. And I feel like it's one of those situations where you don't get to tell people how special they've been to mm. you um, unless you're interviewing them for your podcast. So <laughs> thanks for being here, Matt. Um, those of you who don't know, Matt Humphrey uh, actually hired me at Aveda 12 years ago. Um, he took a chance on a hot mess hairdresser <laughs> and I, uh, he really truly taught me everything I know about how to be a successful businesswoman. And to this day, I still lean on him anytime I feel like I need some inspiration or I need some coaching. He's somebody I can reach out to. And, um, you've always just been such a pillar, uh, for my career and somebody who I really, really admire. And I'm just so grateful for everyone to get to know you today. Wow, that's 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 the greatest compliment. So thank you, and super proud of all you've achieved, Jess. And you know, it was a funny story. We can, we, I'm happy to tell it whenever you want. But it, it, I still remember that dinner sitting down with you, and you know, driving in the snow, and really driving across the entire state of Montana with you. You get to know someone quite well. You sure do. Yeah. <laughs> So now that we've buttered you up, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into the beauty industry? Yeah, I'm an odd duck for sure, guys. I'm, I don't know that there's anyone else like me um, in the industry, but we, uh, let's see, 
I started in 1995 in Boise, Idaho. I went to work for the private distributor of Aveda at that point. Uh, Aveda was still privately owned and distributed their products uh, regionally with um, different distributors. And, you know, the local distributor took a chance on me. I was um, out of school and working at Bank of America and couldn't have been more bored. (laughs) And my hairdresser at the time, um, who is still working today and owns one of the owners of Graber and Company, Odell England, um, I was a long-term client of that salon. Grew up going to this amazing Aveda salon in, in Boise and, you know, dated the front desk girl and, you know, got behind the scenes and discovered what a cool industry it was through this collection of really intellectually hip people. And, you know, in a, t- in a town like Boise, you're not necessarily exposed to the beauty industry um, at any level until you, you know, get behind the scenes on this. And so, uh, one day I was complaining about how bored I was. Uh, I did accounts payable for three different states, which means I basically paid the bills for the bank. And that just couldn't have been more um, of a sleep sleeping pill for me. And the, the Odell said, you know, you should really consider um, going into sales and, and you could sell a thousand bottles of Veda shampoo. And I said, you know, I, gosh, I love Veda. I didn't know there were jobs like that. So, I found out who their rep was at the time in a, in a different territory and turns out she was a friend of mine. So I literally job interviewed her over a keg of beer at a house party. I love and it. then yep, six interviews later, they gave me a shot and they gave me just a total crap territory um, in Eastern uh, Boise, Eastern Idaho and uh, Eastern Oregon and I'm sorry, West. Yeah. Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington. So I drove over, two different mountain passes to sell lipstick at (laughs) a young age. And I was, I fell in love with the industry. So here I am. I love it. You know, I feel similar to it. I was behind the chair when I met Matt. And for me, I just felt like I had a lot more to offer and really understimulated. So when I first met Matt and we talked about the position, I had a really similar epiphany in that I didn't even know mm-hmm. these positions were available. I didn't even know business like this happened behind the scenes of these of this industry. Yeah, it's, it's an eye-opener. I mean, it really is a fantastic career and a fan, really fantastic group of small business owners and the, the, the Aveda network. I know this isn't a commercial for Aveda, but it's unlike anything else in the industry. So and Jess, you and I were really lucky. Yep. I agree. Um, I also, in our time together, I do take credit for introducing Matt to Adele. <laughs> yes. Not and physically, I but still, on the radio. <laughs> I, I, I am guilt-free about cranking up Adele as I drive around and my, all my kids grew up listening to her. So thank you for that. I will expose one bad trait on Matt. There is a downside to him. Uh-oh. He is a U2 fan. Oh. <laughs> I like U2. Ew, Unabashed. Both of you. Yeah, Unabashed. Not as much as Adele. It's funny, my neighbor in my building actually was in our salon a few weeks ago and I was like I think we live in the same building and she goes yeah I think we share a wall and she goes I could tell because of all the Adele playing <laughs> and I was like yeah. ah damn it <laughs> that would be That's me great I love it so fast forward Matt you 
then went from corporate side to now owning a couple different salons and barbershops. What kind of inspired that leap and how did that process work for you? That's a good question. You know, after almost two decades in corporate Aveda, um, working in the field, I did, gosh, all kinds of different positions. I was a, a rep like Jess. Um, I was a regional sales manager, a district education manager on the retail team. I kind of explored all the facets I could and then I was a director of sales for about five different states in the Northwest. And then I left for a startup. And unlike what you hear in the media, you always hear about the startups that are hugely successful. <laughs> you don't hear about the ones that start down like the one I left for. Mm. And, you know, I had nine million reasons to leave in stock options. And for a company that was supposed to be purchased in two years, so it was a 24-month, $9 million gamble, and I lost. Uh, but what I gained was some deep insights into new guest acquisition tools and the digital front with building websites and um, really, again, focusing on new guest acquisition. So that was you know, a failure, which I, the older I get, the more I realize how important those are. Mm-hmm. And so... After that failure on the way down, one of my favorite clients at the time, actually the favorite client at the time, was Mr. Gary House from Gary Manuel um, in Seattle who owned the Aveda Institute. And we had sort of flirted with working together at some point earlier in my career. Um, and I used to tease them all the time that they couldn't afford me. And only because I knew their profit and loss and I didn't want to put them in a position um, as successful as they were. Mm. And so long story short, as my startup was going down, he was a small investor in that startup. And so he knew where things were headed for me. Mm-hmm. He found himself in a position where he had lost, uh, he was losing his director and was looking for someone to run their company as he tried to slowly retire and, and find the other side of his life in the business. Um, so they invited me. I came to work as their as the president of their company, and I had a fantastic. I call it my MBA in in the salon industry, working with um, Gary and Manuel. Um, Gary in close proximity for about two and a half years before his untimely passing, mm-hmm. and then after he passed away, you know, plans changed. Manuel didn't want to sell the company, and I really, I kind of didn't even think of another possibility. I blindly went down that path. And so I stopped for a minute and for about a year, just really spent a a lot of time, um, you know, doing my own marketing and helping my friends and former clients on the West coast and East coast. And, you know, just really did some deep thinking on what was next. And I, you know, I had this dream and I woke up in the morning one day and it was it was literally like Gary came to me and said, "Don't let your dream of entrepreneurialism die with me." Mm-hmm. And so I woke up that morning, kind of having the chills, like about the whole thing. And I thought, "Well, that's weird." And then I literally got a call from uh, a former colleague at Aveda and owner of a salon here, who I'd known for about twenty years, and I knew their business really well. I was always a fan. I used to send my reps there. Uh, to get the Aveda experience, and it was it was just like the easiest decision. So, unfortunately, like my, the rest of my path, it's like 
you know, driving through the mountains of Idaho and Montana, there's no straight path. It's all <laughs> curvy and unpredictable and you never know. Yeah. Um, that took about a year and a half to negotiate, but I did the riskiest thing in the industry, which is buying someone else's business mm-hmm. um, and banking on the staff staying, mm-hmm. which is probably a whole podcast in itself. Um, <laughs> so I I made that big risk and bought it and, you know, only had to liberate a couple and attracted the rest to stay. Hey, Matt, on that, can you elaborate a little more? Is there something you thoughtfully did uh, with those staff during that transition? Because even when we talk about new management coming on or new leadership coming on to a salon, I feel like there's always that like it's like dating new people, you know, you have to start this relationship. Can you give us a little bit of just more information on how you worked with the existing staff? Sure. And, you know, I can't say that I wrote the book on it by all means. In fact, I have sort of my own working manual for the next acquisition. If I ever buy another business with an existing team, there's a couple that I really like that I've been talking to for years that, you know, I'd love to be their transition plan because I think they have really great business models um, in good locations and, you know, something worth buying other than just someone else's lease, right? Mm-hmm. Lease and old fixtures is what I joke about. But yeah, um, yeah so the, the main thing I started off doing that I would say was that gave me the result was I didn't just launch them into too much change at once. Mm-hmm. And I came in and I immediately tweaked the, you know, uh, and it was a gamble, but I, I took away the service charge that they were being mm-hmm. charged. They were getting charged 15% off the top before their commission. And I felt like that was just out of date. Wow. Um, so that you would think would be like life changing. It, it certainly helped attract them um, to stay. And then I started systematically doing little things that made a difference for them, like automatic deposit, which the prior owner couldn't do due to cash flow um, and mismanagement on that side. So they, you know, really, you know, trying to find a way to make make their lives pretty seamless. It's funny how popular. I think automatic deposit was actually more popular than the numerical take home that they got from my change of the fifteen percent. So. <laughs> Yeah, that that was that kind of stuff. And then I honored, you know, all their place in time with their vacation. And I did something else that was progressive, which is I, I, I try to treat them a little bit like how I was treated at Aveda. And I gave them, you know, a lot of businesses that I had worked with over the last couple of decades follow the laws of their state and city. And they do paid time off as they're supposed to by law, but they put it in one bucket. So if you're sick, then you kind of lose your vacation time if you take that time. So it's it's a strange formula that I never quite understood. So I separated the bucket. So people that had, you know, I had people that had been there for 20 some years when I bought it and they had three weeks of vacation paid. And so I thought, well, that's hardly fair. If you're sick, you're going to punish them mm-hmm. and take that out. So I separated those buckets and that was a pretty popular um, approach. So they got sick and sick time and then um, paid time off. So just the little things that were sort of enrichment on their side. Um, and then, you know, the other funny thing, and, and Jess, I, I know your your mom was a salon owner and um, you grew up as a salon baby. But, you know, 
and you guys both know working at Salon, how important operations is. So fixing stuff in a timely manner, you know, <laughs> yeah. coming in and fixing that broken shampoo bowl or, you know, so I was quick to respond to everything operationally, which made me popular. And I don't think I was nearly as um, dynamic and, you know, um, quite the show person that the former owner was. I, I certainly, you know, wasn't trying to, you know, change their life and their definition of, you know, personal growth and that platform. I was trying to retool that business to make it profitable mm-hmm. and to make it enriching, not just for myself, but them. And even though some of them didn't realize it, they certainly did after the next, you know, two or three years, they could see it in their paycheck. And if they couldn't see it, then I helped them and I showed them because the long math part is the part that sometimes people in our industry just don't do. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is this has been kind of a running theme in our podcast and and the way Jessica and I approach leadership from is you were saying you went in with the mindset to really help make this business more profitable and everything you listed at first were things to do in favor of the employee. And Jessica and I have worked with a lot of salons and a lot of owners where their idea of making things more profitable is not really to give more to the employees. And so I love that you do that because in my head, that is long-term thinking. You keep the, you know, employee retention, I think is one of the most important metrics within a business. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Like how you go in, especially to, you know, you're taking over someone else's business to kind of have that mindset of profitability equals or come is directly correlated to really employee happiness. Right. And and thanks for giving me the opportunity to expand on it because before I become hugely unpopular in the ownership circles <laughs> by just saying that one statement, yeah, I, I, you give me the chance to elaborate where I would say while I did that, I also did something critical, which was I started filling shifts that hadn't been filled before with hairdressers. So I increased mm-hmm. the income and because, you, you know, in order to pay more, you got to make more. So, you know, all the the spots that are, and that's not the employee's job. Their job isn't, isn't, they're not in charge of marketing. They're not in charge of new guest acquisition. That's my job. So I started filling chairs and filling capacity and found a way to increase that overall efficiency. And by the way, um, you know, and and that was new to a lot of them too. And, And I used all kinds of different vehicles to do it digitally and a lot of that met some resistance so i can't say it was super rosy in the beginning because some people that were below 80 percent productive were the most resistant to me putting people in the chair Mm -hmm. at a discount and i just i was like patient and and helped them and i did lots of you know powerpoint slides which you know went really nowhere but my (laughs) attempt my attempts to try to help them see the, the value of having someone in your chair, even at a discount and not, not self-identifying that, Hey, that first time client, even at some sort of old school promotional discount really works, but I kind of had to prove it to him. So I bought some good faith by giving to, you know, to the point of the question, I bought some good faith by offering out um, some significant changes in their potential income. And then I did my job with increasing it and finding ways to uh, drive new, new, do- new dollars in. 
So over the span of three years, I, you know, I did one other thing and I expanded next door into just under 500 square feet and built a concept barbershop, which is, I think, why I'm here. But that little four chair barbershop, in addition to what I was doing next door, grew the overall business by 42.3% year over year. I mean, 42.3% over three years. 42% each year? Um, sorry, forty-two percent over three okay. years. So, yeah, it was on that a down. Like, that was on a. It was on a downhill slide yeah. for about three to five years, where every year it was losing. So, I just just that major change flipped it to by twenty nineteen before COVID hit. Um, we were just just close to three million. Wow! So, congratulations. That's that's incredible. Thank you. Well. I learned a lot of Veda. I paid attention. And that's the key. One thing before we move on to the barbershop, because that's where we really want to get into the bulk of it. I just want to point out something else you said. You were just like a wealth of knowledge. And every owner, seriously, it needs to listen up. And this is something I will preach until my dying breath is that you said it's not the employee's job to fill chairs and fill shifts and do the marketing. That is the business's priority. And we've worked with so many. I've worked with an owner where, you know, someone left, uh, an employee left, and they're scrounging to the remaining employees. We need to fill these shifts. Everyone needs to pick up a shift or something like that. And I've always said, that's our job. That's our job to fill that and figure that out. That is not the employee's job to figure out the finite details of the business. Yeah, I, I and I appreciate you saying that. I think, you know, I love the name of your podcast with the hustle part, you know, the the hustle. It doesn't necessarily replace the hustle. So, yes. you're right and and I I take full ownership in the marketing part and then the hustle part is on them, right? To yeah. keep those new clients. And yeah. that's where that's where I think communicate like any good relationship communication comes in. If yes. you sit down with people and you say, "Look, here's how many new clients I I brought you." here's how many you kept, then you start to develop appreciation for whatever I'm doing, right? And that's the thing. It's that mutual appreciation. How do you appreciate your staff? How can they appreciate you as an owner? And and by the way, for all the owners that listen to this, there's no delusion here. I mean, I do not think that I'm extremely popular with my staff at any given time. <laughs> but the good, the good news is they're still there. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what matters. And I, and I think that's a huge testament to the kind of leader and owner you are, that your staff is still with you. I think that's, like I said, again, number one indicator of the health of a business is the employee retention. So For sure. For sure. All right. So let's talk about that barbershop you opened next door. Why barbershop? And have you always had an attraction towards barbershop? Or how did that part of the business come to be? Yeah, it's funny. As I listen to your question, Jess, how excited I get to even answer the question. It means I've found the right thing that I'm supposed to be doing. So when I was at Aveda, I was privileged to be asked to sit on this little marketing panel. Like Aveda is really innovative like that. They'll, They'll pick reps in the field like, you know, Jess, you're super famous now and on TV for a good reason, right? You, you Because you're really good at your job, but they also saw potential in you. And you know, to help them further develop whatever it is. So in this case, it was men's marketing for me. I mean, men's, uh, the men's business for me. And our friend at the time uh, was working for Aveda. Kurt Kiefner had launched mm-hmm. the new men's curriculum. And we had the new 
men's line that had been freshly minted and was beautiful and um, amazing in every way. And we were starting to try to expand our distribution into, for the first time since Horse sold the company, um, to SA Lauder, we were looking at going into doors that weren't the traditional salon and spa and actually look at barbershops. Now, barbershops had gotten a bad rap because of the low retail and um, the low dollar potential because their average you know, service per service ticket is so low. So it it was closely scrutinized. Um, and I was fortunate because I didn't have a lot of hair at the time when Jess met me. <laughs> and so I was able to run around all over the Northwest and the West Coast, everywhere I went, to start to um, see what barbershops were about in this, you know, 2000s. And what, what exactly was this, the service experience and would Aveda fit into it? And could we make you know, a a dent in that market and help them grow. So long story short, I found a couple high-end tiers. I went to every kind of barbershop you could imagine, you know, from the the cool barbershops that do all the football players to, you know, the old-time Western barbershops, which I love, um, you know, to the places in New York where – you know, you, you it's sort of like the soup Nazi. You walk in and they don't talk to you. And if you actually talk, you kind of could almost get kicked out if you're not polite enough as a guest. So it's, it's hilarious. But we ended up opening uh, a couple a high-end chain here in Seattle. And it was a great experiment for me. We went in, um, we went in heavy, um, like the full boat of Aveda in, in on four locations. And we brought in Kurt to do some fantastic education and long story short guys, it was a miserable failure because the, the ownership of that group really wasn't invested in the technical quality. And I, I watched it go down and I was, and I was struggling to find a way to influence that, you know, decision on how to be more successful with us. But they, they were locked into a different metric. They were locked into a volume metric mm-hmm. and they had their, their own ideas about what that was supposed to be. So I learned really quickly that the same lesson I learned in salons and spas, which is, you know, it really, you got to find a way to uh, bring some new information that fits in with the goals and, and the dreams of the entrepreneur. And if that entrepreneur doesn't see the potential, they're not going to see it if you continue to go at it the same way. So I tried to come in with a different route and a different route and a different route, and it just sort of mm-hmm. petered out. And they had a lot of money on the shelf and were not hugely successful selling it through. So there was one location that was just killer, so I studied that one and I watched why they were killer. And, and Philip, you'll love this. It comes back to the staff. The mm-hmm. staff was highly engaged. Yeah. They had a fantastic relationship with their clients. And they were in it. We, we took over the back bar and they were introducing Aveda. And then people were going home with it. Mm-hmm. And so there you go. Not a, not a hard formula, but one I studied. So long story short, guys, the next thing in the chapter is I spent two different years in London, England, with um, taking group of beauty school students. And while they went to the advanced academy, and I'd host about 14 of them, we'd go to the big England, uh, I'm sorry, London beauty show. We'd go to the Royal Albert Hall presentation for hair color. It was just unbelievable. 
And then we would go to, they would go to the advanced academy. And while they were at the advanced academy, I was scouting every cool high-end barbershop in London. And that's where it clicked in for me as a personal goal, which was I saw the level of service that was delivered in a place like London where men, you know, dress differently than say Seattle, Mm -hmm. right? And so you have, you know, that sort of personal care element is dialed way up. Um, And I just saw the whole experience and it was like the Ottoman crew guys, you know, the Turkish guys who were, you know, chandeliers and brick cooled buildings and these guys, you know, in white uniforms and serving really strong, like curl of the hair on your toes, Turkish coffee, but, but doing like, you know, nose wax, ear wax, you know, kind of the mini facial, um, their version of a stress relieving treatment, which is like a chiropractic, um, they cracked all kinds of bones. I don't know if they should have cracked and (laughs) in a haircut experience. And I was blown away and I thought, you know, there's nothing like this in the United States. Nothing. I'd sort of exhaustively searched working with Veda to try to find something like that. So I knew in my heart, that's what I was going to do. So I paid a small ransom to this Thai restaurant next door to the salon to take over their lease. And I like have a killer friend who's a designer. He used to work for Ralph Lauren. He loves Veda. I loved Ralph. Ralph was the reason I was inspired about the beauty industry, um, just fashion. Mm -hmm. And he, he helped me design a barbershop that was, you know, a tiny little four chair barbershop. And we did something which I think is the heart and soul, which is we came up with our own vision. And then I resourced the best in the industry, which was Kurt Kiefner, even though he had gone off on his own. Mm-hmm. He was non-manufacturer um, associated. And long story short, guys, he had the blueprint for what those six basic haircuts are. So like mm-hmm. the French method has three cuts. Um, you know, the in the men's industry, there's about six haircuts. So we took that and what Kurt had to offer, which is the blueprint, and we followed, um, you know, he, he gave us everything really in, in a groundbreaking thing called the Grooming Collective, which is, you know, for him, he called it, what does he say? It's pretty funny. He calls it like what lead architecture is for environmental sustainable architecture. He wanted to be for the men's grooming industry. And I mm-hmm. thought that was admirable. And I just blindly followed it, and I knew I knew I was going to get quality on the other end. But, and this is the big key to a conversation I had with Jess, I also knew that it wasn't like a franchise. He wasn't handing over the binders and the, t- and the training tapes. He was saying, here's what I've got. You go make it your own. So that was the big um, run up the hill. And you know what? It was fantastic. The first year out, we did just about close to 800,000 in revenue in four chairs. Nice. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And it was, it was in my top person who I brought over to be the trainer. You know, we grew, we had a, we graduated a total of four interns, which is not very impressive guys over 12 months, (laughs) but we grew four people through our advanced training program. And those people were hitting the deck making 63,000 a year in Seattle, which Mm doesn't suck your first year on the yeah, floor. Yeah. Yeah. And my and my top person, you know, she was taken home by year 2, she's in the six figures. Wow. So did you 
especially in the creation of this, come against any resistance from your stylist because I feel like that's one of the biggest barriers, like you said, in this country, why that kind of culture doesn't exist for self-care in barbershops and men's grooming is I feel like, I mean, it's there. The market is there. I think the clients are there that want it. I have experienced a lot of stylists who are resistant to that kind of service on men, especially in salons and spas. Like, oh, you get a lot of the, oh, men don't want that or it's uncomfortable. Did you experience any of that? Or was that just like the, this is our culture, take it or leave it? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> and you mean you mean resistance from the people I was hiring or the people next door to my in my salon that were watching me do it? Uh, both. Both, okay. So... That's a great question. You know, I'll start with the people next door. So they watched me do this. The prior owner was just going to put more hair chairs over there and, you know, um, expand that way. So like new talents would stay on one side and, you know, kind of following the bank council Mm. and jute vision, which is, you know, putting new talents on one side and and, uh, people who graduate on the other. And so when I did the barbershop, they all thought I was crazy and then the weird thing was a, a lot of them kind of felt like, you know, it was, it was, it was a big gamble and they watched me go build this beautiful new barbershop and they, it was a little bit like give, if, if you had the Brady Bunch and the new kids to the family get the new room in the house. <laughs> so it wasn't wildly popular. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I invited, we had a big open house um, when we were finished and we kind of had the new launch of our new salon brand at the same time. We invited all our friends and family and tried to really invite them all and show them the potential of what happens when you capture a different part of the market. Because if you looked at our database, you'd see about 95% were female clients in our on our salon and about 5% were male. So, you know, starting this, what was really interesting is there's a huge, all these, all these women have been in their lives, right? Mm-hmm. And it was offering a luxury experience. And I was really careful early on not to genderize it because it really wasn't just about men's grooming. It was about just offering this cool experience. So, yeah. you know, getting a banquet license and being able to serve whiskey um, and beer and, you know, a very curated music list that wasn't the same where every place you go, because all these little details mattered to me and creating this sort of environment where it feels like you got a first class upgrade on a plane. And, and you know, a lot of, a a couple women followed the stylist that I brought over that really bought into the vision and, and really enjoyed getting their haircut over there. So, you know, we do gray blending. We don't do, you know, balayage over there but it was it was like hey if you want this experience you can go on this side <laughs> if you want this experience you can go on that side so it was it was really i think if i did it again um i would learn from the same mistakes that i made of course and hopefully not make them again um but what's interesting is recruiting is is the other part you really it's a great question philip because you get you end up with these stylists that may have gravitated to doing men's hair because they thought it was easier. Mm. And then when you introduce the technical rigor of saying, mm-hmm. okay, so in order to be really successful with us, you got to pass these six haircuts and you got to go through this, you know, eight week training and that separated out. So I, 
I didn't just get a bunch of cosmetologists with a pulse and put them in there and it was successful. I really, we had to work hard to filter through people that were just passionate about these, you know, this emerging industry of, you know, the cool haircuts. And, you know, we had a lot of women that had really cool haircuts. Like I call them the soccer haircuts where you got really tight fades and Mm -hmm. undercuts. And so that was really fun to watch that progress over the past three and a half years um, because the clientele is so diverse in Seattle. You just can't, you can't pin the tail on the donkey, as they say, right? Yeah. So that's been really interesting. Um, But yeah, it's really identifying people in the front end and, Believe me, every time I do a new interview, I craft the narrative so that I'm trying to identify all the, th- the problems that I have with people and why they didn't work out mm-hmm. and try to identify those in the future recruits. And, and one of those is, do you have a heart for education? Do you, do you continue to want to grow? You know, If you just want to do $35 haircuts or $38 haircuts, I'm not the place to be. Because I have no ceiling on how much you charge other than I'm going to dictate it based on how good you are technically. And do people like you? Will they refer you to their friends? And will they come back? Right? Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's the secret to success. So, you know, now we have people, we have two people that charge $90 for a 45-minute haircut. And they have a waiting list, people that book out, you know, four to six weeks. That's awesome. I mean, we could do a whole episode also on just the hiring process and the importance of that because that's really where it all starts. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a lot, and it, this space is truly beautiful, Matt. I mean, um, it, it, you've done an amazing job of designing the space. We'll make sure to link to his social media accounts um, oh, yeah. in the bio so everyone can go check it out. But if we can pivot a little bit, um, because I think we have a lot of most of our listeners are owners, managers of salons, and they entertain this idea of expanding into barbershops and opening barbershops. And this is kind of what prompted our last conversation is I reached out to you, Matt, to talk about um, the difference in compensation structures between a traditional salon setup and a barbershop setup. Um, so can you talk to owners just a little bit about how they need to pivot the way they're looking at compensation when it comes to a barbershop model? Sure. You know, I, I don't know that this is the gold standard, but it's it's working for me, and I keep expanding on it. And that is, I think the 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 first thing is, you know, compensation is one part of it. And when you understand that, that I think that it, it will help you further, faster in your goal. If you're really passionate about creating a, a high end grooming experience in the in the barbershop vein then all that vision and all that idea is going to transform. And and really the compensation part is, is a functionality of that. So, you know, that's why working with someone like Jess is really smart um, to consult with because it's not the only thing that matters. So to answer the question directly, what we did is we, we, um, we changed, obviously took away the, the commission charge off the top. You use way less product um, on the on the barbershop side than you do the salon um, when it comes to hair color and that kind of business. Hair cutting, obviously, shampoo is shampoo. But what I did is I increased the commission a bit so that it was it was competitive in the marketplace with other barbershops. However, 
the the key to our success was creating really three levels. So if you looked at my website, steelbarber.com, you could see what the starting price is based on the the technical rigor and the experience of the stylist. And do they retain guests? All the benchmarks you guys have probably talked about on past podcasts. So those three starting points all have a plus in front of it because it's not the price. It's starting at that price. And then you have new talents and you have people on that. And our clients have been really receptive to that. I was it was a bit of a gamble, you know, to roll into a market where it, the standard was thirty eight dollars, and suddenly at the time my top person was charging seventy. Yeah. So you, know, you really had to prove that that's a fantastic haircut and a fantastic experience. So on the compensation side, that was one. The second thing is I changed the metric for the retail bonus as an incentive. I lowered the tier because your kind of retail per client ticket is more like our benchmark on a barbershop is more like $8 when next door in a salon and spa, it's more like seventeen fifty or I don't know, Jess, what have they upped it to lately, right? Yeah. $18, $19. $18, so that helped a little bit. Um, but really that straightforward communication back to Philip's point earlier on, the straightforward communication and how you get paid here's the commission. There's no shell game. Yeah. It's super straightforward, but this is the, this is the starting point and this is where you could go. And, you know, I think having the Island, you know, someone um, like in my case, Amber to swim out to and say, Hey, I could be an Amber someday. I could make yeah. six figures in this business if I work hard and do the work. Yeah. And I think the thing that you said to me that really stood out also was um, that you don't have to be everything to everyone and that um, what was tanning salons in the 90s has kind of become sometimes what barbershops are, can be and that they seem easy to kind of pop up. There's low overhead, um, but to create an environment and a business model the way you have it really takes that dedication to expertise, that commitment to customer excellence and um, I think that's what makes your business stand out so much from the crowd is your commitment to excellence. It, it really shows up. Well, thank you. You know, compliments get you everywhere with me, Jess. I'll, <laughs> I'll show up on your podcast anytime. Um, but no, it's true. And the, that's, that's the fear is, you know, I think people for the right idea, you know, want to expand and grow their business, but sometimes think that this might be an easy way to do it. But the thing to consider is, you know, looking closely at your marketplace, like, you know, what's your going to, what's your point of difference going to be? Mm-hmm. Are you just going to roll in and how are you going to do it better? Right. That's the question I would ask myself. And, you know, I've seen several salon friends in the past go this route and there's, it's not a far stretch from really their salon experience, Yeah. but they, but they're trying to put in a fancy old barber chair and call it a barbershop, but really there's, there's no big separation. And, you know, it's like having a men's domain or, you know, a men's salon, like, like go to J crew, right? J crew has clothes on one side. Um, if you know, again, gender isn't part of it. You can walk over there and buy clothes that you, if you like that, that are men's or women's or whatever you want to do. But I think the big thing is coming up with a concept that gives you a point of difference and that is it uniquely yours. Yeah. Like that's the problem in our industries is everybody tends to just do kind of a bad knockoff of either themselves or like to do a men's business. 
don't just do a, a not an easy knockoff of your own brand. Yes. Do something strong and unique and give people um, a chance, you know, to experience something that's going to resonate with them. And, you know, that's tough to do because you get all the same barbershops, right, that all have the TV and the, you know, the old barber pole or they go the hipster route. And, you know, what I found in my marketplace, and this is the key, is really study your marketplace, is there was a, there was a group of clients that were, dis, that were sort of disaffected hipsters, right? They didn't want to go, like, to the same barbershop you know, with the inconsistent technical quality, the hit and miss, the music that was more for the staff than them, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and it was like this tough kind of environment and you were just going there because you didn't have to make an appointment. So that was kind of, that's also a really interesting metric if you guys want to care to hear about it. But we, you know, we really do a lot of by appointment. Online booking is probably... 90% of how my clients book and our walk-ins we still offer walk-ins but we're we're really training our our customer base to book ahead which is good. Yeah, I love that. That so that kind of ties into my last question for you Matt and that's you had mentioned in the beginning when you left the startup you learned a lot about the digital aspect and the technology behind the beauty industry as well and I think that's sometimes kind of a last thought for a lot of owners especially as they open up a business or even ones that have been around for a long time and are kind of coming into this new social media age and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it for you? Because I feel now more than ever, it is vital to a business to be online booking, uh, to be utilizing social media and more digital platforms. Oh, for sure. I'll start off with where we, you know, have a lot of room for improvement and everybody's got opinions on this, mostly my staff, right? And that is social media, right? We could always be better with social media. Um, You know, some of my staff are amazing. Like if you looked at our salon, um, you know, Instagram, Matthew Steele, Salon and Spa, those, you know, a couple of my stylists are amazing, like Alex and Taylor, like they just crank out great content all the time. And I just repost it because that's my concept as a salon is I'm not a famous hairdresser, so you can be. And they they really shine. And then on the barbershop side, same thing. I mean, we suck at content and, and curating it. That's really got to be someone's job. And I haven't found someone that gets me and my brand and what I'm trying to do. But someday I'll probably hire that person. Um, but the but on the other aspects, the, the key here is there's there's two things you just said that one of them Philip. but the first one is if you don't get your google places squared away early and i ran into a big problem with mine because the building had had was an old old building and trying to get that up and i made a simple mistake in google places when i first did it and i used to do this a little bit for a living right as a freelancer but if you make a mistake in google there is no hotline to call for google to ever get to a human being and once you do they can't tell you what the mistake was so be really be really careful when you set up google places because they they have all these safety mechanisms for fraud and fraudulent businesses that will literally lock you out of having or being found with the number one search engine in the world yeah, I, so I learned the hard way and I actually found some consultants through the Google, you know, less than help desk, right? So <laughs> I found I found one of their dumb videos and I watched it and I was like, okay, I'm going to hire those guys to help me get out of this. And sure enough, they had the keys to the kingdom and got me out. So, um, but 
that so Google Places is key. The next place is online booking. Find a robust software that has a really you know seamless tool for online booking. Um, the one I use actually always started always was good. I did some consulting with them for them in the past, and I knew the ins and outs of kind of the software that you know mostly we came across in Aveda. So I felt like they were the go to. And, you know, it turned out really well and it just keeps getting better. We have an app that allows customers to look at both locations and pop around um, and easily make an appointment. If you don't do that in this age, you know, it's, you guys know, it's all the, all the rage that have a pizza delivered to your door or a Starbucks. And if you can't book a hair appointment easily, then forget about it. What platform do you guys use for booking, Matt? You know, we use Salon Ultimate. Okay. Yeah. And they were super interesting because they, you know, about two to three years, well, four years ago, got the Sports Clip franchise. Mm. And so they developed their platform um, with that online tool and it's called Booked By. But that Booked By tool was was more seamless than most mm-hmm. in the beginning. And I just found it super easy. The, the The part that we're still working on and I need to work with them on is when you book online, it, it, it creates this great portal and it makes it easy p- for people to give you their business and book an appointment, but it's still up to the front desk. You got to jockey that appointment around because it may create an odd space in your books. Mm. You have to have a pretty savvy front desk that reaches yeah. out and says, Hey Matt, I noticed I have you at two. Can we get you at one forty-five? Yeah. Yes. Because the, the tool isn't intelligent like a front desk person should be intelligent. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I've worked with a booking software where, same thing it you know we were really focusing on smart booking and making sure the day was running as efficiently as yep. possible and you really uh, all it all comes down to training the front desk to spot those and deal with it and handle it right away for a really efficient day which yeah. makes it easier for everyone absolutely yeah I love it. Well, I knew we would learn so much from you, Matt. And uh, as always, I'm super inspired and so just so grateful for you sharing yourself with us. Um, But we like to end every podcast episode with three questions from a Google random question generator. Are you game to play? Sure. Okay. I I can't protect you from what these may be. (laughs) Okay. The first one is what is a personal pet peeve? I'm going to edit this one a little bit and let's do an industry pet peeve. A what? An industry pet peeve. Okay. What's an industry pet peeve? Okay. You know what? I'm going to expand on what I said just prior, which is, you know, it's fantastic to find mentors and businesses that you look up to. And so the, the greatest compliment I know this is going to drive Jess crazy, but you know, one of the lines in a U2 song that Bono flips in there is, you know, every artist is a thief, right? So it's cool to borrow from the best. And I certainly get to thank a lot of fantastic people like David Wagner, Jim Pacifico, you know, Van Council, I could keep going. And, but at the end of the day, you got to make it your own and don't, you know, because you're never going to be successful just doing a knockoff of, jute salon you got to make it your salon and same with barbershops you know don't just go out there and and you know like i say slap up four chairs and try to stick a bunch of hairdressers over there and think it's going to be successful like really do the work and really invest yourself in the forefront of what is your vision um that's my pet peeve i love love it it. that's a good one what about you jess what's your pet peeve uh 
I think mine is just because this topic is coming up for me all the time right now, but it's this umbrella statement of retail-less salons mm. where everyone is shifting exclusively towards e-commerce business, which definitely makes sense for certain demographics, certain yeah. salon footprints. However, you know, I personally have salons that I work with that do thirty to $50,000 in walk-in retail traffic, and it doesn't make sense for everybody to fall in the same business model. So kind of like leaning on Matt's where his is more around the concept of their business, but where people hear a business model idea and rather than customizing it for the reality of where they live, how they service their community, um, they just kind of like leap to whatever somebody is saying. Because I think there's room for both. Yeah. Um, But I think people sometimes forget to look in their own four walls and customize things based on where they're making money right now. Totally. Yes. Yeah. What about you, Philip? Um, well, you know me. You're always annoyed, so I know you <laughs> have something good. I could have a list. I think my biggest one right now is I'm seeing on social media just overly using or misusing the term color correction. I think there's a lot of people who, you know, you're just doing a full foil, and just because it's on darker hair does not constitute a color correction, which in turn people use that to, I think, charge a little more. And by the hour. And I don't like that. I, I'm very much, I love this movement of like paying the worth of a hairdresser and really not have, you know, because there's kind of a stigma right now sometimes and for a long time about hairdressers charging or making a decent living or a good living. And so I'm all for that. But I think that's kind of, it's starting to swing the other way where people are charging too much and calling it something that I don't think it should be. Yeah. So I, I can see that. I'm all about fairness. That's good. All right, next one. Let's see what Google has. Um, ooh, a recent TV show, movie, or book that you enjoyed? Oh, you're going to love this, Jess, or, or hate it, depending on your, your situation. <laughs> but I am in love with um, that little show that's made your state very popular. You oh, might have yeah. heard of it. Yeah. Yellowstone. Yes. <laughs> If I had a dollar for every friend yeah, who know. lives in like Chicago or New York and they're like, can you get me a man? <laughs> well, yeah, we I, live I in this town. want to move to the Dutton Ranch. Is right, key. right. Yeah. And we live in the city that is featured on the show. So we get it quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry to bring it up then. No, no I love good, it. It's a great it. show. It's good. What about you, Jess? Um, I mean, this is just where my life is right now uh, <laughs> with a to three-year-old at home most of the time, but Encanto, the new Disney oh, movie. I, I It's so good. Like I told my husband the other day, we were watching it for like the 97th time. Um, there's this one song on there. It's, we don't talk about Bruno. And I told him, I'm like, if we were young and went to the club, I would rec- I would request like a remix of this and dance so <laughs> hard to this. The music in Disney movies is so good. And it. that's what I'm all there for right now. I love it. It's the only shows I get to watch. <laughs> Um, I just started a book called American Dirt, and it's about a um, a, woman, a Mexican woman who lives in a small village, and basically the drug cartels come in, and her and her son have to go on the run to the United States to get away from them. And so it's about her journey, like literally just walking across Mexico to save her and her son's life. Oh my God. So it's mm. really good. That would be good. I just listened to a podcast about stories of people who have made the journey. Mm. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. 
All right, last one. Let's see. Oh, this is a good one. When you want to escape from everyone, where do you go? Oh, that's great. You know, my mind's going to sound less than in, inventful or creative, but it's a dog walk. You know, it's yeah. it's like a meditation. I yeah. can walk my dogs anywhere. And as long as I don't, you know, answer any phone calls, it's just a perfect escape. Watch, you know, following those guys as they follow their nose. Yep. I agree. Mine is similar, but it's by myself, uh, a hike, just yeah. anywhere out in nature, preferably without phone service, just a uh, hike by myself and nature is really grounding for me. Love it. Awesome. How about you? Um, okay. Don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's like a, a car drive, yeah. music blasting, especially here in Bozeman, like go out somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, but recently I have purchased an Oculus oh. VR headset and I am pumped like every day. There's meditation apps, workout apps. I love it. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm making sure I'm not doing too much because I can easily get lost in it. And I'm not a gamer at all, but it, it it's, I'm such a techie and this is really cool tech. And so it's just kind of, sometimes I just sit with the headset on and like some nature scene and I'm like, wow, this is the future. <laughs> you are such a nerd. Oh goodness. Well, thank you, Matt, for being here with us today. It was such a pleasure to yes, get to um, hear from you. I know everybody will learn so much. Uh, if people want to continue learning from you and get to know more about your business, where can they follow you on social media? Okay. So let's see. Steel Barber Seattle is the first Instagram and then the other one is Steel Barber Ballard, and Steel is S T double E L E. And you know, anyone's always welcome to email me at matt at steelbarber.com. I love it so much. If you guys are ever in the Seattle area, make sure to hop online and make an appointment. Um, I would love for you to experience all the great things we talked about today. Thanks again, Matt, for your time. You're always a wealth of knowledge, and I'm forever grateful for you and everything you've done for me and everything you've done for our industry. Yes, oh, you. you're the best. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for having me. So appreciate it. And congrats on all your success, Jess. Super happy. And congrats, Philip, on this cool podcast you guys have created together. It's a great thing for our industry. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been really fun. Yeah, thank you for this. We really appreciate it. All right, everyone, that's all we have for you today. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Matt as much as we did. Again, make sure to follow him on all his socials. And while you're over on Instagram, make sure you give us a follow at Philip Procopio and at Jessica406Saunders. And hey, the best way to show your host some love is by leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It's greatly appreciated. So until next time, everyone, stay beautiful and keep hustling.